0: One of the keys to understanding Jesus' parables is first just understanding what they are. Are they merely moral lessons from a wise teacher, like a, another version of Aesop's fables, for instance? This is one way they've been read. You just you have this wisdom, this moral wisdom, and you just, Jesus happens to be the one sharing it. It's a very wise teacher. On the other end of the spectrum, because the parables often end with some moral implication, like last week's parable of the Good Samaritan and the command to love one's neighbor, the parables have sometimes been played off against other places in Scripture where Jesus is presented as being all about grace with no commands. And in this case, the parables become sort of a foil for the real gospel of grace. They're great stories, but they're not as important as, say, uh, the book of Romans. I think there's a path forward that doesn't relegate the parables merely to morals or to something lesser than other parts of the Bible. Here's what the parables are. They're windows into the kingdom that Jesus is bringing through His death and His resurrection. They're windows into the kingdom Jesus is bringing through His death and resurrection. Jesus is on His way to the cross as He tells these stories. And through Jesus, particularly His death and resurrection, God is breaking into our world in a new way. He is conquering sin and death and causing a new kind of life to flow into our world. After Jesus' ascension, He's going to send His Spirit to fill His followers and enable them to live in the way of this kingdom. He's going to enable them to love and forgive their enemies, to live the kind of sacrificial life that they formerly thought was impossible. The parables are windows into this kingdom way. They aim to convert us into a new way of living in the world right now. To live out God's kingdom on earth in the present. So even though they're not merely moral lessons, they do call us on the carpet in some places. They call some of us to give more money sacrificially than we have before. Others of us, to turn an enemy into a neighbor. The parables are absolutely rooted in God's mercy that He shows through Jesus' sacrificial death, but they also insist on our conversion to God's kingdom way, to His new world that He's bringing on earth. So, in our parable this morning, for instance, Jesus is seeking to convert us to the way of His kingdom with regard to money and possessions. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to open it to this parable the parable of the rich fool that's in Luke chapter 12 and starting in verse 13. The context of this parable is that a man asks Jesus, well, or rather, a man tells Jesus to settle a dispute between him and his brother over an inheritance. All right, here's what's interesting about this the inheritance laws in the ancient world often did work out to the advantage of the older siblings. The older brother was not legally obligated to split the inheritance. Oftentimes, uh, uh, older brother, younger brother would live right next to each other. And so if they live close to each other, the brother could, younger brother can continue to benefit from the inheritance. But there was never just a, a split. The older brother didn't just give the money to the younger brother. They, they just kind of shared it. Dinner together, they enjoy the same things that they buy, this, this sort of deal. But in this case... The younger brother seems to think that the older brother isn't sharing in a fair way. So the younger brother could justifiably feel wronged. Everything about his plea to Jesus indicates he believes justice is on his side. Haven't all of us, at some point or another, been faced with situations of unfairness? of having our generosity abused or being taken advantage of, not getting our fair shake. Especially when it comes to money. This can feel terribly unfair. Jesus' response is a little surprising to me. He refuses to be the judge in this scenario. And isn't Jesus supposed to be the judge overall? He is. But Jesus seems to think that the inheritance issue is only the surface presenting problem for this man. And so the deeper problem is that of greed. Instead of dealing with the surface, Jesus shares a story of warning. The parable of the rich fool is about two main things. And we're going to spend time with each of them. First, it's about God's generosity. Second, it's about the human inclination toward greed. So first, we're going to look at God's generosity in this story. The way Jesus tells the story gives absolutely no credit to this man for his wealth. Where does his wealth come from? And we hear this at the outset. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. The land creates his wealth. There's never any mention of the man's work or ingenuity. Now, this might seem like a minor detail, but in the Bible, there's an entire world of meaning here, a treasure that's hidden beneath the surface. It is a reminder of where wealth comes from. In the book of Exodus, when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, they were homeless. Where would they go? How would they survive? Would they always be nomads scrounging to get by? In the midst of economic uncertainty, God promised His people a land in which every person would have space to grow crops, to raise animals, and to provide for their family. He gave them a vision of a land that would produce abundantly where no one would have to go without. This is what we hear God tell his people in the book of Leviticus. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. God even commanded his people that once they arrived in the land and started working, they should regularly stop and feast for a week at a time bringing in all their workers to enjoy the bounty. You shall rejoice in your feasts, God said. You and your son and your daughter, your male and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town. No one was to be left out of the celebration. Feasting was commanded by God because He wanted His people to stop working, to trust Him enough to enjoy His generosity. God never wanted His people to resort to a fretful stockpiling of goods for years into the future. He provided the land. And with the land, God also provided the resources for enjoyment and leisure. Now this all sounds well and good, doesn't it? But we all know there are droughts. Or if you're like us, sometimes there are gluts of rain. Farmers sometimes have a bad return. What would they do then? Well, God also made plans for this. No one should ever have to go hungry in Israel. Farmers with a good yield should leave some grain in their fields so that neighbors with a bad yield would have access to food. For those who had a long-term run of bad luck, who had to sell their property, God made sure they were never permanently alienated from the land. The year of Jubilee, which would arrive every 50 years, required that land sold to cover their debts should be returned to their original owner. Written within the laws of God's people was a guarantee of redemption, protection from generational poverty. The land would be the source through which God would bless and provide for everyone in Israel. And the basis for all of this was that the land actually belonged to no one. Its only real owner is God. Again, I know this is a small comment in our story. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. But in the mention of the land is a storehouse of meaning. The land is the source of God's generosity. It's the place God wished to bless His people and provide for all of them abundantly. Israel's entire economic policy served God's vision for community life, which we're going to see later. The American economic policy does not serve a vision for community life. It serves a vision for individual prosperity. Israel's economic policy had a vision for every member of the community becoming a full participant. So the man in our story is experiencing God's generosity. And it's actually not very difficult to translate this to our own world. The sobering reality is that no human being, none of us, can produce wealth on our own. We cannot. Sure, some of us have enormous gifts for business, attack for earning wealth. Some of us work extremely hard. Many of us do. Nevertheless, to to obtain wealth requires the right conditions. Whether it's a stock portfolio or a farm, conditions have to be right for us to be successful. Any success we experience is always linked to God's Generosity. As it was in Israel, the land truly belonged to God, so it is with us. Our wealth, however small or however great it is, it does not belong to us. It is a gift that is to be stewarded. So what does this man do with God's generosity? Second, this story is about our inclination toward greed. Our inclination toward greed. I can say very honestly, this is not a shaming tactic, nor is it a tithing plea. It is not. This is simply a spiritual reality. Humanity is inclined toward greed. In Deuteronomy, God warns Israel that if they begin to be successful, they'll be tempted to forget him and to believe that they've succeeded by their own means. Listen, To Deuteronomy chapter 8. Beware, God says, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. This is an inclination of the human heart. The more we make, the more secure we feel through money and possessions, the more tempted we are to hold on to it and to forget God. And this proves true in the case of the man in our story. His abundant yield creates a predicament in his mind. So he says to himself, what should I do? I don't have a place to store my crops. The man's question turns out to be self-deception. We know it because we hear his solution. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. The man has space to store grain. Remember what it said in Proverbs? Give to the Lord and your barns will just be bursting with plenty. He's got plenty of space to store his grain. He just wants to store more. More grain will mean more security. What was the real problem with what this man did? It wasn't success. It wasn't his fault, and he isn't blamed for being successful. His success was related to God's generosity. And the problem was not his enjoyment of his success, the celebrating and the merrymaking. Israel feasted all the time as a way of celebrating God's provision. And Jesus not only endorses, but he participates in this kind of celebration. He attends parties at people's homes. He tells the story of a father who hosts an extravagant party at the return of his son. And to boot, Jesus turns water into wine to make sure that a party doesn't stop. So why is this man called a fool? Which, by the way, is the most derogatory name a person can be called in all the Bible. He's called a fool Because he has refused to heed the warning. If you begin to be successful, you will be tempted to forget God and think you have succeeded by your own means. This does not mean that the man has suddenly become an atheist, that he no longer believes in God. He probably still participates in a religious life, but in his lifestyle, he has forgotten God. When it comes to what he does with his money and his possessions, he has forgotten God. Jesus says at the end of the story, Thus it is for the one who stores up for himself, but is not rich toward God. To be rich toward God is spelled out over and over in Scripture as caring for God's people, one's neighbors, especially the poor and the vulnerable. God does provide wealth, but wealth is never solely for oneself. This man's flaw was that he turned his wealth into an independent resource for his own security, reserved for him and not for the benefit of others. We are all, because we're human, inclined toward greed. This is what Jesus is warning us about. And we can tell nearly the same exact story in our own culture. So... Over a period of about a little over 30 years, from the late 1960s to the early 2000s, per-person incomes in the U.S. doubled. And this is wonderful, at least on the surface of it. Are people happier? Are they more generous? Well, over the same 30-year period, an average church member's giving actually went down from a little over 3%, to somewhere in the 2% range. At the same time, the cases of mental illness, anxiety, and depression rose dramatically. Other evidence tells us that Americans who make $10,000 a year or less give an average of 11.2% of their income. $10,000 or less give an average of 11.2% of their income. While those who make more than $150,000 a year give on average only 2.7%. At least on average, here's what the story tells of these numbers, the more Americans make, the smaller percentage they give away. Why is this? Well, it's at least partly because the hearts of humans are bent toward greed and our economy is made up of humans. Our economy is based on satisfying individual desires through consumption. So, here's another example. General Motors' marketing team, years ago, described themselves as being in the business of organized creation of dissatisfaction. Organized creation of dissatisfaction. In our country's economic system, in the words of one economist, is concerned with the maximum satisfaction of human material wants. The maximum satisfaction of human material wants. Do You know what Job says? He, sa- uh, he says that the eyes of man are never satisfied. The problem is that we're never satisfied with human material wants. We, we always want more and more and more. The problem with all of this is that greed and consumption, in the end... Only leave us lonely, isolated from God and from each other. And this is what the increasing struggles with anxiety and depression are exposing. What we long for is intimacy, to be identified with God and with each other. And greed doesn't solve that, it doesn't do that for us. Now remember, Through the parables, Jesus is seeking to convert us to his kingdom way, to a life of fullness that is lived out in community of God's people. So here he seeks to convert us from our inclination toward greed to mutual generosity. We experience God's generosity, all of us in different ways, on different levels, some smaller than others, but... Either way, we're willing to share the way that we experience God's generosity. You know, what we see in the New Testament book of Acts is a picture of a people who are converted to the way of God's kingdom with their wealth. Just like in the Old Testament, they're willing to let go of land holdings to make sure that everyone in the church is cared for and that no one goes without. This is what we hear about in Acts chapter 2. They're willing to sell whatever they have so that no one goes without. Now, this type of behavior has actually continued throughout the life of the church. I gave negative statistics just a minute ago, but it's not all bad news. Aristides was an early Christian apologist. And one of the strongest defenses of the authenticity of Christianity has always been Christians' generosity toward each other and toward the poor. Sacrificial love draws people into the faith. So Aristides wrote in one of his defenses that if a Christian became poor and the church had nothing to spare, the community would fast two or three days for that person. And in this way, they could supply any poor man with the food he needed. Now, it's unlikely that we will have to go to such extremes ourselves, but what we need to hear in this is the principle of sacrifice. We're willing to do whatever we can to help each other. A more modern example of this is a man named Alan Barnhart. Alan Barnhart was uh, called, felt called, He he had the choice of going into his family's business or becoming a missionary, but he felt called to go into his family's business. It was a crane and rigging company, but he knew that going into the family's business would uh, mean wealth. And so he spent two years studying what the Bible said about money, business, and wealth. And he reached two conclusions. The first was God owned everything, the second, He needed to be afraid of the way his wealth could lead him away from Jesus. So he built in accountability. He set a ceiling on his own income, and he devoted much of the profits to the furthering of God's kingdom. And this is one of those stories of God opening his storehouse and rewarding his people's giving. So his business grew 25% a year for 23 years. For 10 years, the company gave away $1 million a month. And in 2007, they donated the business to a charitable foundation. What does the kingdom way of wealth look like for Church of the Lamb? As individuals and as a church, we need to be oriented toward God's kingdom with our wealth. We need to be oriented toward each other with our wealth. If you are a person who is lacking, if you're in need, you need to be able to trust that this community is the place God has called you to be cared for. And if we're not caring for you, you need to call us on the carpet. It is our job. And you don't need to be so prideful that you refuse to let us care for you. That's sin too. If you have enough, if you have excess, you need to trust that the church is God's primary means for spreading His kingdom in the world. This is why throughout the book of Acts, it is the church that is bringing money, selling things, and bringing it all together so that the church is cared for and that the poor in the community are cared for. The church is worth your generosity. And I rarely hear of people regretting having given to God in this way. Do you hear of people who regret being so generous? Not often. It seems always to come back somehow. You know, one of the big questions we often hear asked is, do God's people still have to give 10% in the New Testament, right? Does the Old Testament law apply when it comes to giving? And I don't mean to be flippant about this, but I don't think that was a question that often came up in the New Testament church. Can you imagine Paul visiting and you know, there's the poor around and they're trying to make sure they're cared for and someone raises their hand and says, hey, do we have to give 10%? The only rule was sacrificial generosity. And for most people that clearly started at 10% and went up from there. C.S. Lewis's advice on giving has become classic, and I think for good reason. Here's what Lewis said. I do not believe one can settle how much one ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we want to do but cannot do because our giving expenditures exclude them. You know, the good news is that giving is never one-sided in God's kingdom. Never. We give not because God absolutely needs our giving because He's desperate for it and God will go without if we don't give. God does own everything. We give because when we do, we participate and experience God's own generous love in our own lives. In giving, we align ourselves with his kingdom way, and we come to know his kingdom more deeply as the way that truly is coming on earth as it is in heaven. So, Jesus is seeking to convert us. Will we be converted? Will we be converted to the way of his kingdom? Will we lay out everything we have for God's kingdom?